0: Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast for April 2013. My name's George Miller, and my guest in this programme is journalist Emma Brocks, whose new book, She Left Me the Gun, is published this month. In the words of one reviewer, it's a courageous, clear-sighted book, which shifts between memoir and elegy. It's also been praised by Zoe Heller as one of the most genuinely uplifting works I have read in years. The gun of the title belonged to Emma Brocks' mother, Paula, ...who left South Africa as a young woman in 1960... ...and sailed to England to make a new life for herself. More than that, to rebuild herself after the trauma of her early years. One day I will tell you the story of my life, she promised her ten-year-old daughter... ...and you will be amazed. There were few signs of that trauma in Emma's outwardly normal childhood... ...though that gun was one. There were only occasional hints at another history behind the official version... Paula had been sexually abused by her violent, alcoholic father, as had several of her siblings. When Paula pressed charges in 1958, and the case came to trial, her father conducted his own defence, and systematically destroyed his own children in the witness box. He was found not guilty. After Paula's death a decade ago, Emma set out to discover all she could about her mother's early life, which meant travelling around South Africa, meeting relatives she barely knew, and risking bringing back memories that some of them might have preferred to forget. The bizarre humour of many of her encounters in South Africa, the quirkiness and resilience of her newfound family, and above all her mother's astonishing strength of character, mean the book is worlds away from the realm of misery memoir, as I think this interview makes apparent. I met Emma when she visited London from her home in New York recently and began by remarking that on the face of it, at least, she had had the most normal home county's childhood in the most apparently unremarkable middle-class family.
1: Yes, very ordinary Buckinghamshire childhood. I did all the regular things. I, you know, I did the after-school activities. Um, I went to a nice school. I've had nice little friends. There was no drama in my upbringing at all. The only thing that differentiated me from all of my other friends was a very the very small detail of my mother having come from somewhere else. And it wasn't that interesting of a of a country. It was South Africa, so it's not like English was her second language. It was it was a fairly well, at the time, I thought a fairly similar culture, although as it turned out, the the culture she had been raised in could not have been more different. But on the surface of things, it was a completely standard, nice childhood. The funny thing about my mum is that she, in some ways, was a completely normal mother. So she didn't stand out at the school gate. She did all the regular things. She went to yoga in the village hall. She shopped at Budgeons. She queued up at the post office. I would say there were character flourishes which looking back struck me as eccentric but which at the time I didn't sort of categorise as such. So she was very opinionated. She quite liked to fight. You know, she was up for a Barney with someone, either a neighbour or if she felt that she'd been uh, mistreated in in a shop or something, she would be quite, she would assert herself more forcefully than perhaps some of my friends' milder parents (laughs) would do. So I was aware that she had a slightly unusual personality but it didn't go beyond that.
0: You describe it in the book, I think, as being at a slant to the culture. So so she, she clearly wanted to be part of it, but not not entirely.
1: Yes, she exactly it's exactly that. She I think it was very important for her at some level and for my sake to fit in. But she retained the right to take a sidelong look at the culture she was living in. And I think she actually valued her outsider status. I think she felt it was more interesting to be from somewhere else and to be able to have a slightly caustic relationship with the culture that you lived with
0: her own early years in south africa she did talk about them i mean there were certain stories that became part of your childhood and certain larger than larger than life wildlife and, and and extreme weather and that sort of thing
1: well that's what's so interesting it's not like there was a hard line on never speaking of the past which i think would have even to a child not interested in their parents early years would have struck me as dysfunctional it would have been here's the thing a therapist described my mother's background in relation to my own as the elephant in the room. And it just wasn't. It was That was a complete mischaracterisation. I have absolutely no idea what she did with the elephant, but it wasn't in the room with us. She struck this extraordinarily difficult balance of normalising talking about her past. So yeah, cute stories about snakes and scorpions and and weather. Cute stories of her siblings who played practical jokes on her. And yet... That was obviously a fraction of what the real story was, so she managed to talk about it but but not tell me the real story, which I think was brilliant
0: I mean as you say, even to the extent of talking about her family so it wasn't it wasn't like that was a sort of entombed and closed off. She did actually talk about her siblings she
1: did i think and the thing is she was a natural storyteller, and there, there was the traumatic childhood, but there was also another childhood there's more than one reality going on in any given situation, right so she had a ton of really fun, good wildlife based stories from her childhood which her natural exuberance sought out so she wasn't going to deny herself the pleasure and me the pleasure of telling me great stories from her childhood the the extraordinary thing psychologically is that she was able to separate the incredibly dark elements of that memory she had from these lighter things that she she held to her as important
0: so when did you first get an intimation of the traumatic side of her her background
1: it's hard to... I mean, the first the first time that my mother directly referred to there having been something wrong was something that I write about in the first chapter of the book, which is this moment when I suppose I was about 10 years old, where she... and I can't remember the, the, the run-up to it. In my memory, it appears out of nowhere. This moment in the kitchen where she started to say, my father was a violent alcoholic and a paedophile and, or who... And her tone was so odd. It was so discordant. It was a sort of angry. In the book, I say it was like a medium channeling an angry spirit. And she wasn't looking at me. She was looking at the into the mouth of the grill as the sausages cooked. All of my hackles rose. And I was so disturbed that I just I shut it down. I burst into tears. And she didn't persevere she didn't pursue it but the extraordinary thing about that scene was that in any other circumstance my my mother if I was crying would have moved to console me and she didn't she she carried on standing at, at the cooker's mouth looking into it and she didn't really directly speak of it again until she was ill in the last summer of her life but in those intervening 15 years there were all sorts of hints and intimations that something hadn't been right so for example she would react or rather overreact to certain storylines in like tv cop shows so if there was a molestation storyline which there often is in those kind of shows my mother would be threatening all sorts of retribution on the head of the fictional <laughs> pedophile and it and it was it was just apparent that it touched some sort of nerve with her so i wasn't when she finally did tell me i wasn't wholly surprised
0: so in those in those intervening years you had a strong sense of her wanting to say something but holding herself back and you think the reason for that was that she wanted to sort of well you describe it very beautifully in the book as being like a a colored windbreak on a on a desolate beach and she was she was sort of sheltering you from you know from what she had what the what the impact that she had borne herself
1: exactly she didn't want me to be poisoned by by this stuff and I think rightly made the calculation that if she tried to well first of all I'm I, you know a child is not the person to share that with, and I imagine she thought that it wouldn't help her and that all it could do is upset me in that she, she certainly didn't want it to be something that I would factor into my building of an identity, <laughs> you know. She didn't want to pass on an ancient grievance to me, which I then had to carry down the years. So very pragmatically, I think, she just decided to to bring down the shutters on that on that element. But you cannot do that 100%. So so yes, she, she had triggers, and, and I was aware of what they were. But by and large, it just wasn't present in the house with us. It really wasn't. She was incredibly cheerful, very funny. Uh, in love with life, I would say. So she did a very good job.
0: And she had done a very good job on coming to England, hadn't she? She'd come to England in 1960 in her late 20s, knowing no one really, uh, and reinvented herself, rebuilt herself, I think you say.
1: Yes, and, and and at a time when it's not like emigrating now. I mean, I live in America. I'm back in England every three months. I'm on the phone constantly because of various call plans. I can, I can call my friends and my family as if I was in North London. My mum emigrated, to, first of all, she emigrated by ship, which just seems like something out of the 19th century at this point. So she was, you know, two and a half weeks at sea. And she didn't go back to South Africa to see any of her friends and family for seven years after she'd emigrated because she didn't have the money. So an extraordinary act of bravery from a, a 28-year-old without resources. She, she rocked up in London, clutching a handful of references and letters of introduction, got herself a bedsit in Earl's Court with a ton of Australian nurses, as, as is often the way, and invented a new, a new life for herself. Very brave.
0: When your mother was, was suffering from terminal cancer, she did eventually open up and tell you more of, of the story. You say that the telling of that was the most shocking event of your life, or rather one aspect of the telling of that. Can you explain what, what that was?
1: Yes, the second time that she she tried to bring up her background was in the last summer summer of her life, and I managed not to burst into tears at that point. And we had a, a much calmer conversation, although it was still difficult. but it wasn't the actual subject matter that shocked me. So she gave me a, she gave me an overview. she said, you know this is what you need to know. When I was twenty five, I had my father arrested and he it went all the way through to the High court and he was prosecuted. And cross-examined his own children in the witness box and destroyed them one by one. So, but somehow the most shocking thing was a couple of days after that, she was walking from the kitchen out into the passageway, and a thought struck her, and she turned around. I was sitting at the kitchen table, and she said to me, "I think I have come to terms with it." And I knew instantly what she was referring to. And what shocked me was the tense that she used she didn't say I think I came to terms with it it was I have come to terms with it as if it was an ongoing reality as if in all the years that we'd been living in you know this very mild village in Buckinghamshire this other reality had been alive to her and it was one which neither my father nor I was able to be with her in so she had been wholly alone and I found that incredibly shocking
0: and i think going back to the windbreak image is very pertinent isn't it because it's it's protecting and it's but it's also withstanding a force there's a constant force pressing on it trying to to overwhelm it isn't it and and basically you're saying that's what she had been doing she'd been cheerful and strong and and together for you but she was bearing a terrible strain
1: exactly she'd pulled it off this is the thing i mean i think she had been so successful in her development of this persona which she'd come up with in order to, basically in order to survive that she had utterly you know not fooled me but she had led me to believe that it was all done and dusted with which how can it be I mean you you don't step away from that kind of history without carrying a lot of psychological baggage but she was she was so resolute in her decision not to be characterized by it that I had let myself think well well she's fine she's left it behind and this was the only intimation I ever got that that was actually not the case, that there was a process ongoing throughout these years. And, and it was absolutely extraordinary for me to think then of the achievement she had in in, in not letting it define her.
0: Now, another very arresting image, You t- you talk about in the immediate aftermath of her death, it being as if delivery men had brought luggage and were unloading it from a van on the pavement in front of your house and saying, this is yours now. That's a very powerful concrete way of saying you've got to deal with it there's there's something here you can't you can't ignore you can't leave it behind you've actually got to confront what's on the pavement
1: yes it's funny and i i didn't even come up with that image as i was writing as a cute way of illustrating my mental state the the metaphor actually appeared to me whole at the time which was that i really did have this almost physical sensation of men in a van unloading in front of my flat in islington and me I mean, I went through this whole scenario in my head where I said to them, I'm not, "It's not mine. I'm not taking that on." And they said, "No, you have to have it. Well, there's nowhere else for it to go." And so, what are you going to do? You, you're going to leave the suitcases out in the rain. <laughs> so, I um, so I, so I, yeah, I hauled all of my mum's luggage into my apartment, and the only way way to deal with it, I thought, is to open it and to expose it to the light. Otherwise, you know, you're carrying you're carrying dead weight with you. So that's what I did.
0: But I mean, at the same time, you were acutely conscious that that could begin to undo the good work that she'd done that that could sort of begin to unravel
1: yes that the, the, there was no guarantee that doing this book would be psychologically helpful to me and i had absolutely no therapeutic motivation in doing it
0: i was was it a book from the start or was it simply an initial you know because you talk about this initial impulse was it simply to to know and understand and to explore
1: it it, it was simultaneous i knew because i mean i'm a writer and it's a great story And I think I also understood that there would be a a psychological benefit to me thinking of it in terms of a book project, because I would have a sort of fig leaf of professionalism to hide behind when I was going and doing these incredibly difficult interviews with my relatives. So I I did think of it as as a book project from the off, but that said... I think I would have done it anywhere, anyway because it fulfilled a need in me to be with people who had known her and who looked like her. I mean, it, it was really down to the level of physiognomy. I'm an only child. I don't have any cousins in this country. Uh, not on my mum's side. I have no aunts or uncles. So I was just, you know, within weeks of her death, I was just desperate to be in a room with people who would remind me of her. But yes, the big concern was that that I would dig up all of this long buried material and that I would undo all the good work she'd done in <laughs> sort of hiding it from me actually in the end that turned out not to be the case i was sufficiently far removed from it and i only found out about it when i was you know fully when i was 27 so i was a fully formed adult and i was i had the necessary apparatus (laughs) to uh, absorb it without being destroyed
0: inevitably when you set out you didn't know what you were going to discover you had you had an inkling but you didn't you didn't know exactly where the story was going to take you did you i mean i suppose like any journalist but there are risks when it involves your own emotional health and and your family
1: absolutely i had no idea where it would go and but weirdly the fear was not that I would discover something unutterably hideous, but that I would discover that actually not that much had happened at all, and that somehow this was, you know, a psychodrama that had been blown out of all proportion by my mother, who had a dramatic side. It seemed so incredible to me that she would be able to keep this to herself, given that she and I had the kind of relationship where she, she would ring me four times a day when I was in the office to tell me that, you know, the postman had been. And that the cat was acting strangely and that someone that we both hated had just walked past the house, you know, so that so the idea that she'd managed to keep this huge secret all of these years made me worry that actually either that whole conversation we'd had when when she was ill had been some sort of crazy misunderstanding on my part, or that she had blown out of all proportion, a relatively small family dynamic. So that was my concern. So there was a small part of me when I got to South Africa, went to the archive, pulled up the transcript of my grandfather's trial at the High Court. When I saw that actually it was based on a solid event, I was, in a weird way, relieved.
0: That's a very striking moment, isn't it? I think you've just been to Pretoria and you've seen his file and you come out. Can you you describe that moment? Because I was very uh, struck by that.
1: Going into the archive, I thought that I'd be able to photocopy the pages and take them back to my hotel so that I could read them in the privacy of... um, the hotel room or at the bar with a drink in one hand and a pen in the other. But when the file came up from the archive, it was overstuffed. So I couldn't physically get it into the photocopier. So I had three hours, I think, before the car was coming to collect me in which to transcribe by hand the dozens of pages of testimony from my mother and from her siblings about the horrendous abuse wrought on them by their father. So I sort of treated it like a, a physical exercise and I, I tried to disengage my brain as much as I could and I was fairly successful in that. Uh, I got to the end of the last page and I left the archive building and I just blindly started walking to try and to try and wa- walk off the experience of having read of all these, t- these terrible things that have been done and I ended up walking up the hill and finding myself outside the parliament buildings which are very stately buildings in Pretoria and I sat on a bench in the garden opposite the government buildings and looked out over a vista of South African countryside towards Johannesburg. And I felt an extraordinary sense of triumph that finally, after all those years of insinuations and intimations and and half-told stories, that I had actually sat down and read what had happened and that I was fine. I you know, I was obviously shocked, but I was completely whole I hadn't I hadn't been undone mm-hmm. by this and I felt an extraordinary sense of control over the material and I thought this you know these unspoken things have terrorized people in this family for 50 years and I'm done with it I'm not having it anymore and so I, I in my head as one does I, I sort of conducted a, an exchange with my dead grandfather the uh, the murderer and child molester and the phrase that popped into my head was this is mine now well, I'm driving it and it felt I mean it was kind of hokey in a way but it felt like you know I say in the book there's a phrase in the therapeutic lexicon you have to own it which I've always sort of looked down on as being a terrible cliche but that's exactly how I felt that you have to own it and so I felt that I would own it so hard that it would break apart in my hands.
0: What about confronting all these, these ghosts and memories with your South African family? Because you say as as you arrive in South Africa, you know, you were possibly about to do something which is unfair, unethical, and possibly unforgivable. So how did you how did you confront those possibilities?
1: Well, I also say that I realised I had a a huge free pass, which was that my mum had just died, so I could do almost anything (laughs) and no one could really have a go at me because I was the bereaved. So you get a lot of leeway when you are, you know, in the grief blast zone. But at the same time, it was pretty unnerving meeting people, not only meeting people for the first time, meeting people for the first time in the context of wanting to bring up things that they possibly hadn't spoken about to anyone, which turned out to be the case in one of my mother's sisters, so yes, I did feel ambivalent about the ethics of what I was doing, but I just I just felt compelled to do it, and I and I hoped, you know, I'm a journalist. I've done hundreds of interviews. I hoped that if it felt like it wasn't the right thing, that I would retreat. Um, if the barriers came down, I you know, there's only so far that you will you will press a reluctant witness. So I was willing to take my cues from the people that I was talking to. And actually, as it turned out, it became apparent very soon that, you know, I came from somewhere else. No one had ever met me, but they had had this extraordinary bond with my mother. I think I acted as a sort of release mechanism on some of them. And that it was if, if it was anything at all, it was a, a positive thing for them to be able to talk to me.
0: She's still there, isn't she, as a character, really, in, in the dynamic between all of you. She, they refer back to her because she was such a strong force for good in, in their childhoods.
1: Well, that was another surprising thing because there was a bit of me, you know. One is always the hero of one's own story. So when my mother talked about her siblings and this, you know, and the and the and the love between them, there was a part of me that always thought, well, and yet you haven't seen them for thirty years. So what is the value of that love? And and actually, another thing I was worried about was that getting there, I'd come too late. That actually, this bond that she had talked about had expired long ago, and that I was about to embarrass myself by acting on something that just wasn't meaningful to the rest of the siblings. And, and it couldn't have been further from the truth. That it, The most extraordinary thing about the interviews that I did with them was, was the extent to which they remembered what she'd done standing up for them and the extraordinary love between the siblings, which had sort of redeemed something good from a, a terrible, terrible situation.
0: They had varying degrees of, I suppose, willingness or, or readiness or, or ability to actually give voice to what had happened to them in their childhood didn't they you, you talk about a seven-hour conversation with your aunt your aunt Faye where you're kind of talking around it but not actually mm. getting to it and so when when one of your your uncles actually comes out and, and you know says what your grandfather did mm. it's, it's like a sort of re- huge release for you too isn't it
1: it really is I mean my aunt was only too willing to talk to me but she had very sketchy memory the interesting thing about interviewing the siblings is that they represent almost every psychological reaction you can have to a trauma of this nature. So my one of my aunts has repressed memory. One of my uncles had become an alcoholic for many years. There had been repeat behavioural patterns of violence within the family. But yes, so my aunt and I danced around it for seven hours, partly because of her repressed memory. And also because I, you know, she was the first person that I met of my mother's family. And I just, neither of us was able to articulate what was going on. And by the time I met my mum's youngest brother, Stephen, uh, who has a background in psychology, so he, who is able to articulate these things perhaps as, as others might not be. I was just at the point where I was done with euphemism. It, it seemed to me that if I was going to do this, there were words that I would have to be able to say out loud. You know, child molestation, paedophile, incest, words that never get said. So when I was talking to him he he wasn't evasive but he had been talking slightly in euphemisms and and I and I pushed I pushed him to to actually describe what it was that we were talking about which was it it did feel healthy.
0: So when you were in interviewing them you were kind of in professional journalist mode but once the interview had stopped was it different from from going over other material that you've you've interviewed with well, your interviewees?
1: such a good question. Um Yes, I suppose it was different. Well, because I stuck around for a start. So then I we would have dinner or we would go out. So there was a there was a continuing hmm. relationship.
0: But when you came to sort of, you know, transcribe or to re- you think what do I do with this? But did did you feel very different?
1: I did because well, because you know, obviously my my mother's family aren't public figures, so I was I was aware that I was writing about them in a way that I wouldn't ordinarily write about the kinds of people that I interview. There was no narrative established. I was starting from scratch. So it, in lots of ways, it felt like a much harder um, exercise uh, than, than what I usually do. And I was also very mindful of the tone in which I wrote. I wanted to be true to my mother's tone of voice, which was humorous and wry and sarcastic. And all of them had a similar sort of jauntiness about them so I gave much more thought to the tone of the book than I than I would give to regular journalism because it seemed to me that if I got it wrong the consequences would be terrible (laughs) I mean this is the whole rationale of the book apart from the fact that it's a great story and I'm a writer it's that uh, I wanted the book to militate against what has become known as misery memoir
0: you you see it as an anti-misery memoir
1: I do. I think it's anti-museum memoir in that it is a grim story, but it's not grimly told. And I hope it's not told with an eye to a voyeuristic audience. Uh, Somebody who buys the book will be disappointed if that's what they're looking for, because it doesn't deliver those kind of, you know, very. I mean, there are grim details in it, but it's, but it's that's not that's not the takeaway. I hope from the book, which is that, you know, it's it's funny, and the people in it are funny and joyful, and. um, uh, it's. It really isn't just about, you know, eight people's miserable childhoods.
0: There are some astonishingly striking photographs in the book. One which particularly sticks in my mind is a picture of your mother on the day. Is it the day before or the day that she's actually setting off to England on the ship and she's standing with her father. Can you describe what, what you see in that picture?
1: It's an extraordinary photo when you think that 2 years or less than 2 years earlier she had had him arrested and prosecuted all the way to the high court and then first of all what's he doing in the house the picture still tells such an extraordinary story about the dynamics of child abuse when it comes from within the family so her father is back in the house on the day that she's leaving presumably he was invited he's wearing a he's sort of dressed up for it he's wearing a jacket my mother is staring off into space in a when you know the background of the of the family in a way that looks basically freaked out I think he's looking very smug pleased with himself and he's got his arm halfway around ha- her waist so it's an extraordinarily loaded photo which makes absolutely no sense in the context the idea that this man has been allowed back into the house and into the family fold to bid his daughter goodbye his daughter who tried to shoot him <laughs> I mean it's it's mind-boggling and and the extra layer of, of oddness is that her stepmother sent her this photo as a sort of postcard from the family so i mean
0: and and she kept it
1: and she kept it totally extraordinary and on the back of the photo there's a there's a note from her stepmother very cheerful note filling her in on the family toings and froings since she's left there's absolutely no indication (laughs) that this guy ruined all of their lives and their childhoods
0: it's a very strong exemplification of the past being a foreign country isn't it and and South Africa being a foreign country so it's, it's kind of um to the power of, of two
1: absolutely absolutely and 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 the way that sort of repression can take hold within a family keeping up appearances I imagine was very important and especially in South Africa where they grew up in in not terribly genteel circumstances obviously with inside the house but there was a front that was put on when they stepped out of the house and it was maintained for years that nothing's wrong there's nothing to see.
0: Did your grandfather remain ultimately unknowable do you think? I mean in a sense you're not you weren't really seeking to know him but I was very struck by the fact that one of your uncles had until quite shortly before your visit had in the the trunk of his car a box of your grandfather's drawings and poems and you sort of you, you sort of think about whether that would have made you feel in any way different, or should make you feel any way different.
1: I started to think around his character, like, wh- like who is this person? How did he become the person that he became? And I stopped fairly quickly because I think there's only so far you can get trying to second guess the motivations of a psychopath. It's just not. It's it is unknowable. But I mean, the odd thing is, is that the juxtaposition in his nature of this incredible monstrous. Brutality And yes, at the same time, he obviously had a sensibility which enabled him to... He was, a, he was a talented artist. He used to do these sketches that were apparently quite good. His poetry was awful, but, um, but he was a talented carpenter. He, he was, um, you know, he had an artistic sensibility, which I think romantically is still thought of as something that, that civilises, which is, which is, of course, not true at all. It has absolutely no influence on the actual nature of a person and how they behave to other people. But so I looked into his childhood... A little. And I was given a unpublished memoir written by his cousin who grew up next door to him in this mining compound that they lived in at the start of the 20th century in, in northern Johannesburg. And there were, you know, there were, I suppose, a few clues in that it was, a, it was a pretty deprived childhood. They lived in a shack with a tin roof. They weren't provided for. But there was no indication that he was brutalised as a child. And in fact, his cousin who wrote the memoir went on to become a very illustrious academic at Cornell and elsewhere. So Two children brought up in the same environment, one becomes a murderer, one one becomes a high flying academic. There's no way to figure out what went wrong with one and what went, what went wrong with the other. The only thing I would say is that they grew up within the wider context of South Africa, in and and the mining boom in South Africa, which was like I think it, it, very like the um, the the West in the U.S., which was that it was pretty lawless. It was incredibly violent. Uh, it was very drunken. So they grew up in a, a society which which normalised brutality, and also they grew up in the context of apartheid. So they were exonerated to an extent. Whatever they did, they could they could console themselves that they were they were superior, morally, intellectually, on every single level from an entire race of people. So if he needed a free pass, it was right there, provided by the state.
0: Now you mentioned earlier, Emma, that the book is certainly not without humour. So I thought a lot of the humour stems from just what a bizarre place South Africa can be.
1: Yeah, it's pretty wacky. I mean, I am um, yes. Yeah, so the second half of the book divides between my being with my relatives and also living in in the sort of bubble of the expat journalist community in the the uh, west of Johannesburg. And yeah, it's a it's a it's a very strange place i loved johannesburg very lively very vibrant um everyone's struggling to get ahead i mean it feels like i imagine again big american cities when they were really taking off felt everything's up for grabs and everything's still to play for but it (laughs) but it is it's a very peculiar it's a very peculiar place the story that the, the best exemplifies that i think is um a story i was told shortly after arriving i was at a quite posh barbecue at a big house in the northern suburbs, a gated community and I was introduced to someone who was living in a house where someone called the vaulting wanker had recently been sighted. Now he was a neighbourhood streaker who had made a nuisance of himself all around the posh houses of Western Johannesburg. His M.O. was to uh, strip naked and run across the bottom of the garden. And if he saw someone in the kitchen or in one of the bedrooms looking out on the garden, he would enthusiastically masturbate in, the, in their direction. And then he would vault over the fence and disappear.
0: <laughs> so logistics need to, careful planning.
1: Yeah, I know he was ambitious. That's an, that's an ambitious streaker. So he had become known as the vaulting wanker. The extraordinary coda to that story is that one of the people he had streaked past was the daughter of a anti-apartheid campaigner who had been murdered by the security police and her parents murderer was serving time in a maximum security prison. And news of the vaulting wanker had made the newspapers and this murderer in his prison cell had read about it and wanting to atone for having murdered her parent got word to her through his henchman on the outside that if she wanted, he would make the necessary inquiries and quietly eliminate the vaulting wanker. And that would be as an atonement for having killed her. I think it was her father and she communicated back through the relevant channels that in fact this would not be necessary that she wasn't going to take a hit out on on uh, on the streaker and it and it was it it struck me as as saying a lot about um uh, what what an incredibly complicated place south africa is
0: and do you feel it's sort of 10 years on since you made that first trip i think and now you've written the book and you're still in touch with your family. But do you feel, I'm sorry to use the language of of, of self-help, but do you, do you feel a certain sense of closure to, to this chapter of your life?
1: I do. I have to say I've become quite an enthusiastic user of therapeutic language now because it, um, I, I do I do feel a sense of closure. I feel that, you know, the, the suitcases have, you know, evaporated. There's not it feels now like a healthy relationship I you know I, I don't get to South Africa very often but I talk to my aunt on the phone now and then I don't have this sense of mystery and sort of brooding unknowableness about the family background it feels like a much healthier relationship with the past and the funny thing is one reads that this is the case and it's always surprising to find out that cliches are completely 100% true that um The minute you know everything, it suddenly ceases to matter. It's not relevant anymore. And so, yes, I feel very clear of it.
0: Because you talk early on in the book about the difference, the key difference, not being between knowing and not knowing, but between knowing and half knowing. And I suppose you'd you'd all been living in the sort of half knowing state for quite a long time.
1: I think that's true. I think if it's a choice between knowing and not knowing, not knowing is is preferable because you're not being tormented by anything. But the unsustainable situation is half knowing. There's nothing torments like a half truth. So it wasn't even a decision to go and find this stuff out because I, I couldn't be in a position of not being sure what what the truth was and what and, and what the truth wasn't. To to be able to have looked it all in the face and to have withstood <laughs> the the discovery of all those things was could only have been a good thing.
0: Your mother was very proud of you being a journalist, as witnessed when people in the village said you were too young to take on Ariel Sherrod, and she triumphantly said, absolute, absolute nonsense. So in telling you, or sort of setting you on this path, do you think she would actually be, be happy and almost see, saw this as the fulfillment of, of what she had, um, had told you in her, in her last months?
1: Well, it's funny because I I think her first reaction to the book almost certainly would have been to read it and say, I didn't say that, I said this, (laughs) and to to correct me. I'm sure there are uh, lots of small details which she would feel that I had misremembered. I mean, it would have been an impossible book to write while she was alive because it wasn't mine. It wasn't my story to tell while she was still standing between me and the past. But in her absence, I think at some level she would have been absolutely delighted that I could do the thing in a way that she couldn't do. She, she, She achieved so much, but the thing she couldn't do was talk about any of this in a relaxed state of course she couldn't whereas I'm I, I have the advantage of being a generation remove. so I'm I'm able to to do that and to kind of to normalize it so I think and I think she would have been pleased that she comes off I hope in the book as a as a sort of hilarious brilliant jaunty character I think she would have been pleased with that characterization
0: Emma Brocks her book She Left Me the Gun is out now in hardback For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.